Leah Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Improving Your ROI with Cover Crops, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Veteran no-tiller Dave Brandt of Carroll, Ohio has learned firsthand about the many benefits of using cover crops. One of the most important being the improved nutrient cycling that can lead to input savings and a healthier bottom line. In today's podcast, Dave shares some of his many experiences with cover crops, explaining the nutrient potential of an array of different species, where and when those nutrients can be found, how different crops can be used to bring up subsoil nutrients, how he's seen them boost both yields and profits, and more. If you'd like to follow along with this talk, be sure to check out the accompanying slideshow, which he presented at the 2019 National No-Tillage Conference. I have a few slides I would like to show you and try to show you how you can improve your bottom line or improve your revenue. I think with cover crops, we can do that. It's a slow process. We see as we put cover crops in our systems, we can improve the drainage. We can improve the structure of the soil. We can improve the organic matter. All these things don't have a dollar value that I can say it's worth this much to you on your farm. But on our farm, it's worth a lot of money because we went from a half percent organic matter in 1971 to in 2016, NRCS said we had 8.3 organic matter on our farm. So in that period of time, we have been able to change the soils. By doing that, we improved the drainage. We've also improved the beneficial insects. We've also improved our yields. So that's what I want to talk to you about. Just a little history. We started, uh, my first crop was in 1969. Uh, about six or seven acres. We were 100% in 1971. This is a picture of our home farm. I call it an oasis among the desert because as far as you can see in that picture, you see brown soil. Our farm's the only one that's green. Can you imagine those soils that you're seeing the brown in Ohio is losing between six to seven tons of soil per year? If that's the case, and we're averaging 50 bushels of the acre, all my conventional neighbors are losing seven pounds of soil to produce one pound of soybeans. In that seven pounds of soil, they have 47 cents worth of nutrients. Why do we have a problem? If we learn to keep it at home on the farm, we can. We was that way in the early 70s. I am proud to say today, NRCS did a study one year ago that said we are losing less than 100 pounds of soil per acre. Our nutrients are staying where they belong. I think that's what we need to consider, and I hope some of the slides that I show you will let you understand how you might adapt some of the things we talk about here this afternoon. Talk to a lot of my conventional neighbors, and of course they talk about having profit. They have cost in that profit, and they want to have revenue. So as we look at that, 
If they produce more corn, which means more profit, they increase the cost, but the revenue stays the same. So guess what they're doing? They're out renting more land. Get a bigger truck. Haul more, you're going to make more. That's not so. That's why we're talking about having cover crops. As we look at our operation, the revenue, they think the revenue is going to go up in conventional tillage. As we look at our crops, we are after more profit because of the cover crop, because we're keeping that soil where it belongs. We don't have to buy as much nutrient. We still buy some, but not as much as our conventional neighbors. And as we do this and keep the soil where it belongs, we lower the cost. So as we lower the cost, we increase our revenue. So the next several slides I'll show you is how we accomplish this. I really think we've tried to do a lot of things correct. I've probably had 10,000 failures of all the years we've been doing it and probably eight successes. But some of the successes we've learned is in a corn bean rotation, we do not have time enough to grow the biomass and get the cover crop big enough to bring lots of nutrients up. In a corn bean rotation, it will protect the soil. It will keep it from eroding. But what we're after is more in depth. We want to bring that nutrient that's under the subsoil or in the subsoil and beyond to the surface. And we can do it with these plants. And we do it with a three-year rotation of corn, soybeans, and wheat. And we put a 10-way species in after the wheat's harvested or small grains. With this, this gives us about a 75 to 90 day window of growth. Where in a corn bean rotation, you have about a 30 day window. And the cover crop only gets about as tall as the seats you're sitting on. So it can't have the roots to do the things we want it to do. How can we be more profitable? Well, this is just one thing we saw from uh, Conservation Tillage Technology Center. This was done in 2014. And it says if you just no-till, they wouldn't even talk about cover crops. If we just no-till, we can increase our yields. Well, guess what? If that's the case, we can increase our revenue. We also lower the fuel consumption. We also don't need as much iron in the farm. We're fortunate when we started to do no-till, we couldn't afford all the tillage tools. So we ended up with just a little planter and a drill, a sprayer and a combine. And today that's pretty well the same category of things I have, only they're bigger. As we look at cover crops and we look at diversity in our species, we like to see a mix of grasses and legumes and some brassicas. We like to have a lot of legumes to build nitrogen. Do you realize if our corn crop or our warm season grass we plant, and it is a warm season guys, it's not a cool season, we use corn and if it could capture nitrogen we wouldn't have to buy any. There's enough nitrogen in the atmosphere to grow a 200 or 300 bushel corn crop if we could capture it. How are we going to capture it? By looking at different species of legumes. If you can see in this picture, and if you can see it clear enough, you'll see that there's some red blooms there. That happens to be crimson clover. You'll see there's some white blooms there. Well, that's uh, balanza clover. You'll see some purple blooms there. That's hairy vetch. There's probably some winter pea there. And this is what's left over after a 10 way species in a small grain crop that we're going to plant corn into with about six or eight pounds of rye so that we have some grass there to help balance the carbon and nitrogen ratio. So with this, we have shallow roots, medium roots, and deep roots that's bringing nutrients to the surface. This is a study we did back in the 80s on our farm when I worked with Ohio State University and a couple other universities that I've worked with. I called and I said, if we have these legumes, how much nitrogen can we count going towards the corn crop? Well, Mr. Brandt, you realize you have to bury that green stuff on top to get the nitrogen out of it. Well, it says, I don't want to do that. 
So what we did, we planted all these species in about a 10 acre field. And then we started from zero nitrogen to 200 pounds. And then wherever the corn yielded the same as where the 200 pound of nitrogen is on, we figured that's where the cover crop put enough nitrogen in the soil to work to equalize that yield. So if you'll notice there, if we use warm season legumes, such as cow peas and sun hemp, look at the pound of nitrogen they'll grow during the summer. Now you can't plant them in October and expect them to grow because at 34 degrees, they just die. So we have to have either a pre planting or a cereal crop there to make this work. So then we look at some of our cool season legumes such as winter peas, chickling vetch, crimson clover. Those do really well. Sweet clover takes a little longer because sweet clover don't nodulate very much the first year. It's usually the second year that it does most of the nodulation. And I have a problem with red clover because back in the 80s, that was real easy. We used to throw six or seven pounds of red clover in the wheat in the spring, get 40 bushel wheat, get a nice stand of clover, maybe make a cutting of hay, maybe cut some clover seed, and next year you no-till the corn. And guess what? The mice and the bulls ate it. Why did they do that? If you look at the crown of the clover, look at your thumb, that's how big the crown is. Guess where those mice and bulls live all winter? And they're fat and happy like I am, come spring. But all of a sudden they've ate the whole root out and they're about three weeks from corn planting time and then they tend to get a little thinner. So we come along and we actually feed them some corn and they eat it. So that was one we didn't think was worth the effort and it didn't produce that much nitrogen for us. But if you also look at that chart and see the three-year rotation where you can get some growth out of these covers, and we look at sun hip, cow peas, hairy vetch, crimson clover, winter peas, and you do the math there, and according to Dave Brandt, I can collect about 430 pounds of nitrogen. Well, how do you know? Well, I guess we grow 200 bushel corn, and there had to be at least 200 pounds in there with no nitrogen. Those are the things I think we need to look at. And you need to try these things on your own farm. Your climate's different. I talked to Gabe Brown. I like Gabe Brown really well. He talks about harvesting cow peas, sun hemp, all this kind of stuff in North Dakota. Well, guess what? We couldn't even do that because it rains every day in the fall for us. But Gabe goes dry in August, so guess what? Everything dies because it's dried out. And you can harvest that stuff. So remember where you're talking to people. Understand where their climate is. That's all I'm trying to say. We'll get back to Dave Brandt in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Dave Brandt as he explains why he loves including sunflowers in his cover crop mixes. As we look at our species, and I love this picture. We didn't used to do this till about five years ago. And 92% of our land is all cash rented. 85% of all our land ladies are over 85 years old. We're just waiting. Nutrition's gonna get them here one of these days. But five years ago, we kept losing some ground after we'd plant this big green cover. 
I lost one nice lady's farm, and I says, what happened? And she says, well, your neighbor, your conventional neighbor come over, and he says, Mrs. So-and-so, look at that, look at that green weed mass Mr. Brandt's got in his field. We'll give you $10 more an acre, and we'll make it brown, and you won't have to look at it. So guess what? We lost it. And we got busy, and Gabe says, well, maybe you need to put a sunflower in there to bring beneficial insects. So that's one pound of sunflowers four years ago. You know what the best thing is when they're blooming like that in September? The beneficial insects come. That's not the best thing. You take 10 of them, put it in a quart jar. You put a red ribbon around the mouth of the quart jar. You knock on your landlady's door, tell her good morning, and give her a bouquet of flowers. Every six days you do that, and she's ready to reduce the rent. <laughs> you know? Unannounced to us, after about three years of playing with this, my agronomist that I pay a lot of money to and tells me that I can't do all this stuff, we argue and we keep doing it. He says, David, he says, I'm really upset with you. And I says, why is that, Carl? He says, well, he says, those 10 fields you had that multiple species cover crop in, your zinc and magnesium, boron and calcium levels come up. Where did you buy those trace elements and how much did you put on? And I looked at him and I says, we didn't buy anything. Well, he said, you had to. And I said, well, we had sunflowers in that mix. And he says, do you suppose that's what's doing it? So we, were, we checked it two years running and we found our sunflowers were bringing up zinc, magnesium, boron, and helping us balance our nutrient load. It's down there, guys. It's just finding it. Finding the right route to bring it to the surface. I have yet found a soil scientist or a chemist that can tell me how many pounds of phosphorus is in the soil. They can tell me pounds are available by their test, but how many pounds are there? If we can find plants that help to have roots that give off an enzyme that breaks that unavailable phosphorus down like buckwheat does and brings about 10 or 15 pounds of phosphorus to the surface, why not use it for three bucks an acre? Pretty cheap. And we get a lot of beneficial insects. You know, the neat thing of it is people stop and want to take pictures. You know, we talked about being diversified. That's what we're talking about the farm operation. We're getting diversified. When they stop now, we tell them, yes, you can take pictures. It's going to cost you five bucks. <laughs> Last fall, I went by this field, and there were three bales of straw set in the corner of this field. And there was two cars there, and there were three gals in some kind of fancy Looked like, you know, I mean, a wedding picture almost, and that's what they were doing. They were there taking wedding pictures. And he says, do you mind? I said, no, but that'll be $10. <laughs> you know? I mean, learn to be diverse. Another great thing, we look at our corn planters today, and our corn planters today, anything, they'll do anything and everything for us. So why not use them for different things? This morning I had a guy talking about leaving these, you know, he's got a 16-row planter and it plants seven days out of the year. The rest of the time, it, it ends up with bird manure on it. So why not take this planter that you got invested in and maybe use it another 10 days, two weeks, or a month and do alternating rows of cover crops like peas and radishes? This is the best way to get started. Why is that? That's 15 pounds of winter peas, three-quarter pound of radishes. Today, it don't mean much on the radish, but you know, seven, 10 years ago when Steve Roth was making all his money and we were buying tillage radishes, they were three bucks a pound. So if we can go with less than a pound, you know, that's like a 275. That's a pretty cheap cover crop mix. We get 15, $16 in it. And what does it do? 
we actually have an inline ripper. Why do I say that? As that reddishes grow, we precisionally planted each reddish seed four and a half inches apart, just like we do our picket fence stands of corn, and they pull the soil up two inches. They are our storage for our nutrients. They bring phosphorus, all other kind of good things. They hold some nitrogen. It's a good place to make earthworms population grow. If you don't believe me, put one in the garden. Go out there in March when it's going through decomposition. It looks like white snot out of your nose, but that's all right. Those earthworms are in there doing their thing. Not only one, but maybe six or eight or 10. The next time you look, there's a hundred. So we can get our tilling done. If you look real close to the edge of that reddish, you'll see that soil lifted two inches. That's my inline ripper. And no gasoline and no steel. So here was a trial we did with The Ohio State University. This is five years, five fields every year for five different years. And this was the average of the nutrients we found in the soil the day we started planting corn. And I think you'll all agree there's plenty enough there to grow 150 to 200 bushel corn. I don't like to talk about 200 bushel corn. Our soils won't grow it. We don't have that kind of soil. We're on 18, 20% slopes, yellow clay. Every now and then we'll hit a black bottom that equals about an acre. And we do pretty well. But just imagine, imagine having 250 pounds of nitrogen, another extra 23 pounds of phosphorus, an extra 230 pounds of potash that I didn't have to buy, it was there. These plants helped make it available to the next year's plants. Look at the amount of calcium. It sounds like I'm gonna brag, I don't mean to brag. Since 1971, our home farm's never been limed and the pH is still seven. It's had a crop on it every year. Why? Because we're pulling up calcium from down below. Maybe some of your soils don't have calcium, I don't know, but you have to try something to find it out. Uh, this was done by Dr. White and Dr. Ray Wilds out of, out of Pennsylvania. And I throw this in here just to show you why I like to plant on a reddish row. If you can read that and see that, we're looking at 140 to 150 parts per million of phosphorus right in that reddish row. And look two or three inches on the side. Look how far it's pulling it out. Phosphorus is, what, $600 a ton? That's $30 a hundred. That's 15 bucks an acre, 50 pounds an acre. I'll take that every day for a $1.75 reddish an acre, and we get some tillage done. That reddish will go 18 to 24 or 36, depending on what it hits in between there. And if it's got enough time to grow, it'll grow around it or through it or past it. Dr. Lafique Islam said, at the point of that reddish, right at that red point, that reddish is exerting 1,265 pounds of down pressure in the soil. I accused him of pulling that out of his back pocket. I don't know how he checked it, but that's what he says it does. So guess what? It will go through those compacted layers. It may take it a while, but it'll get there. I can't say enough about having wheat in a rotation or a small grain. Maybe you don't have a market. Maybe you need to think about building one. They built a ball diamond somewhere and they came and played ball. So why can't we build a small grain market? In our case, the straw's worth more than the grain is. I'll tell you what, it's really nice to call this young man that I know, he's got two round balers. He bales behind the combine, 750 pound round bale of straw's 15 bucks, he gets five per acre. Do the math, pays for the cover crop. And we've not lost any carbon because we're putting cover crop back immediately after he's done round baling. Most of those bales go to the mushrooms. But we can also have longer time to build cover crops. Climates are different. Each year's different. Dave Brandt does not start planting corn till the soil temperature gets to 58 degrees. 
Now, if it happens to be that warm in March, we're going to start. If it's that warm on the first day of June, we're going to start. Because we're planting a warm season grass. Not a corn plant, a warm season grass. In three days, you can see the spike. In four days, you can see the first true leaves. My neighbor's corn was planted May the 1st, and he can't even grow it yet, and it's been three and a half weeks. Must have awful good genetics in that corn to get up after that long. But this is a cover we saw in 17. It was big. 32,000 pounds of green biomass, which means there was about 11 or 12,000 pounds of dry. On Dave Brandt's math equation, on farms that we've done it with, if we can have 32,000 pounds of biomass or bigger, we can put 1% of organic matter in the soils. Not proven by the university. I just know it happens because my soil sample says because we sample every year. The opposite effect of that is this. 2018, we had winter till May the 1st, on May the 2nd, it was 85 degrees and quit raining, and the cover crop never got very big. So you have to learn to adapt. You have to learn to manage. Conventional tillage, the manage indication is about one inch tall, that word. In a no-till cover crop thing, it's about 14 inches tall. So I'm telling you, it takes more management, but it's worth the rewards. Even this field didn't get but 10% of the nutrients that a conventional farmer put on. I throw this in here just to tell you that NRCS says corn's a warm season grass. You can read it. It just says there that corn grows well above 50 degrees. Proves my point. I've said enough about that. If I don't shut up, I'm gonna preach about it. The nice thing about our covers, here we are planting. You'll notice it's a red planter. I want to show you that picture, how tall it is. It's about five and a half foot tall. This is about 11 o'clock on our farm, getting ready to go to lunch. And as you can see, I don't miss any lunches. Grandson was with me and he says, Grandpa, he says, how long are you gonna eat? And I said, well, you know, we'll get a nice meal and we'll go back. And he says, well, how's come that planter's red? And I says, well, if it's a green one, we couldn't find it. You know, that's how fast this cover crop grows. But can you imagine, can you imagine in this field, all we planted was non-GMO corn at 31,000. All we did was use a crop roller. All we did was manage it and walk the field to see what was going on. No fungicides, no insecticides, no treatments. Harvest the corn was 197 bushel this year, 197 bushel this year. Not too bad a return, fellas. When you look at the equipment cost, interesting thing, we pull that eight row planter with a 125 horse tractor. It burns about eight gallon an hour pulling it no-till. My uncle's 97 years old and still chisels, still works the ground. He don't have a planter, so we do pl go plant his conventional beans and it takes 17 gallon an hour to pull that same planter, his conventional soil. It's the little things that's gonna make you money. There is no golden nugget to find out here with cover crops. Again, this is fun. This is a 30-foot roller. This is my wife. She gets to do just run the tractor without a cab. Uh, she's only run here about four hours because it's still green. Another three hours, it'll be yellow with the pollen. But here we're rolling 42,000 pounds of biomass. This field was 10-year CRP. We got permission two months before it came out of CRP to kill that residue with, with a good herbicide program. 
Went in and planted a 10-way species on August the 1st, let it grow that summer, let it come back up in the spring, rolled a crop, planned a crop, and in 2017, it made 237 bushel. There's what we want. Our farmers, our conventional farmers, says no till means no corn. Guess what? That soil's five to 10 to 20 degrees cooler. Very few weeds. Look at the color of that corn. It's growing well. And we have no loss of soil. So we are not losing any nutrients in that field. There's the thermometers, same day. I think it says 78. I think it says 92 or three, if you could see it. What I really wanted to show you was, we just had an inch of rainfall the day before that picture was taken. Look at the conventional field, cracks in the ground. If I was looking at that field of corn, I'd say it needs at least 60 to 70 pounds of nitrogen because of those yellow leaves. He's already got 336 pounds of anhydrous on it. Look how much healthier that no-till corn is. I throw this in, my grandson's been on the farm for about a year, got a drone. So he's telling grandpa how to farm now. So he takes this picture, you know, and this happens to be, if you can really see it, up close you can see it, but that happens to be 25 different varieties of corn. You can see that we have this nice 2020 monitor. We have all these things on the corn planter that tells you you're doing a great job, but you can still see there's some holes there. And no, I do not have any of that stuff. Should have probably, but I don't. But anyhow, I'm just making a long story short. That's the kind of crop we can grow there. Here's what it looked like in the spring. When we was planting, again, lots of legumes. Planter's doing a nice job, rolling it down. We'll still come back in to crimp it. If we can crimp it every three to four inches, like a roller crimper does, it's like running through your hay bind. It crimps that plant, causes a problem with it, and it will die. So here was our results from our corn plots. Uh, if you can look at it real close, we got our cover crop cost in there. We got non-GMO corn, uh, and that's uh, 31,000, so that's uh, 2.3 acres per bag, somewhere in there. If that would be non-GMO, it would be $132 to $150. We have our burned down herbicide. If we needed one, we didn't need one, but when we talk, everybody says, well, you gotta burn it off. Well, okay, I'll give you that one. We got a little bit of N, P, and K because that was a farm we thought needed some. Chris figured out our equipment cost of $55 an acre. Our rent, we pay $150, which may not be enough, but I'd like to pay $100, you know how we all are. And our total cost is $334.85. Uh, this happened to be in October. The day we harvested the corn, it was worth $3.11. It took 107 bushel, plus a little, to break even. And our yield was 192, which meant we made $252 to pay our fixed cost and have fun to do something else with. Did this a little different. This is a yield map out of the combine. Instead of yield, this is dollars return. So that field did pretty well. There's only a few cells there that we're going to have to get better. And we're going to find out why that problem is. And the red one's on the corners where the deer ate it all. The right angle one's a waterway. But just look at that. That's $300, $400 an acre return on investment. Not too bad with the way we're farming. This is my beneficial insect. Didn't know much about these until I talked to Jill Clapperton and Dr. Don Lundgren. And that's a crabbit beetle. We used to find one every acre in our conventional fields, maybe, if you're lucky. Now we find six to seven in a square foot. They not only eat our slugs, they also eat foxtail. They also eat giant ragweed seeds. That's why we don't need to use an insecticide or a fungicide. We like them really well. You can plant lots of ways you can plant. If you want to plant brown, just remember you got to pay the weatherman right. 
because if he says it's going to be hot and dry for three weeks and you're scared that the cover crop's going to draw out all the moisture, you turn it brown, now don't turn it blue or don't turn it light green because it will wrap, it'll poke, you'll never get the planter to work. So it's got to be brown and crispy. So this is about two and a half weeks before you want to plant. And guess what? The weatherman was right. It rained six and a half inches. And the balance of that field got planted to wheat that fall because it finally dried out. So you have to learn to manage. We plant soybeans early because they seem to take the soil better if it's cooler. And the cover crop's not as big. When it's like this, we have to use a burn down, take it out. So you can see the date there. I think that says uh, April the 28th. We didn't start planting corn until May the 28th, so that's about a month ahead. We'll have 60 to 70% of our beans planted before we put the first kernel of corn in the ground. If it gets away from us, we can do this. Don't all of you pass out on me. Yeah, you can plant green. I don't think you can plant 10 mile an hour with them new John Deere planters because they don't have enough bushel baskets to walk behind it and pick up the parts. <laughs> but if you slow them down a little bit, they'll work fine. If you don't like the corn planter, a drill works just as well. And one thing I want you to notice on all these pictures, do you see a whole bunch of dust? Do you realize that we're only getting about 20% of the hours on our equipment versus our neighbors conventional? We never have to change an air cleaner but once a year. Sometimes we could go longer than that, but it's just a policy on our farm. Grandson knows that, that's his job. Change oils, change filters. But then what we're looking at, we're looking at what could happen. Here's our rye, second leaf soybeans growing. Look at the weed suppression. What do we see from rye versus a conventional field? We see about six bushel more beans. We see the suppression of giant ragweed. We see suppression of winter annuals. We also see lack of sudden death in the field. We also see lack of white mold. I think the reason is that is because the soil's not splashing up on the bean stem because of the covers keeping it from splashing when we have a rainfall event. But here's the ultimate answer. This is really good for David. 72 bushel beans and no weeds. Everybody could live with that, I think. So here was the cost of our beans. Cover crop was $9. Seeding seed non-GMO beans was 42. And guess what? Next year we've got our own cleaner. It's only going to be $8.30. We're going to use plant our own beans. Heck with it. No, not, no NPK, equipment costs, land rent. Total was $235.28. $8.40 beans, if you sold them, I had to have 28 bushel beans. They made 72, a nice return on my investment. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by our no-till authorities featured in the series, then join us in St. Louis from January 7th through the 10th for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. We've lined up more than 30 top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most out of your no-till farming system. Share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during 13 thought-provoking general sessions, 23 expert-led no-till classrooms, 76 farmer-to-farmer roundtable discussions, and two exclusive workshops on soil biology and raising hemp as a specialty crop. The National No-Tillage Conference is 100% money-back guaranteed to bring all of the resources, information, and networking opportunities you need to help your no-till operation reach new heights in 2020. Listeners of this podcast can receive a $20 registration discount by visiting notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC and entering code PODCAST20 at checkout. Now, let's get back to Dave Brand.
This just happens to be another map, and I thought this was interesting. On the left, if you're looking at that picture, that's 50, 49 years of no-till to the red line you see in the center. The red line is where we dug a trench and put three phase from the road to a farm building to put the cleaning facility in. That was done a year ago, so guess what? There's compaction, there's crap there. And on the right is a new farm I bought three years ago that had been planted to soybeans for 25 years, conventional. So we look at those two different fields. Look what I've got to do to change that left-hand side to equal the right. We've got to do a lot more on cover crops to make it work. Our corn plots, they talked about them. In 15, we had uh, 25 varieties. We had 15 non-GMO. We had four, or we had 15 GMOs. We had four non-GMOs and 11 organics. And this was our yields. In 15, we decided we would go non-GMO. I think this is what you need to do at your own place. You don't need to do a whole lot of it. I don't know whether there's a combine in this room that don't have a yield monitor. And I don't care if we're not right, it don't matter. All we're doing is running the relationship between this variety and that variety. Some guy says, I got 500 bushel here, but only got 400 on this one. I says, well, that one was just 10% better or 20% better. I don't care what he says. We just gotta look at the relationship of what's going on if you're not gonna calibrate them. So these are things I think we could try on our own place to see if we could generate a little more revenue. Again, there's the plots, pretty nice picture of it. On the top of that picture, that's all conventional corn. It's a little taller than ours, gonna be. Yielded 37 bushel less than ours did for the year. 2018, we worked with a non-GMO corn company. We had 11 of their varieties, they averaged 180. Average cost of production was $259. Profit per variety was $289 and change. Did you guys all have $300 profit per acre on your corn, conventional? Again, I love standing out in the field. It's hard for me to speak here today. I'm a lot better standing out in the field, wondering what's going on, enjoying it. Cover crops has made it fun. I can't find enough cover crops not to play with and still increase the revenue. Just imagine, the trees are starting to turn, the leaves are falling, and all you see is green around you makes you feel good every morning rather than see brown soybean fields and see dust fly. Yes, we have problems. This has to be cover crop in the corn bean rotation. How can we go from this, trying to build soils, and trying to build soils here? Six, five, six thousand pounds of biomass. Then he calls up and says, why can't I get the results you do, David? All I gotta tell you, stretch out your rotation, be more versed, figure out some way to get that long, term cover crop in there to make it work. Yes, we can grow corn. In the forefront of the pictures, you'll see the peas and radishes. In the back picture, you'll see the corn. That was 237 bushel corn. I thank you for your time, and I'll take any questions you have. Do you have trouble killing sunflowers? Do I have trouble killing sunflowers? In our case, since the, the seeding rate's low, we get a lot of birds coming in the fall. The deer love them. And actually, they don't actually mature. They make seed, but the seed's not mature enough to make germination by planting them in August. They probably wouldn't make seed if we did it in June or July, but it's not been a problem because they winter kill, and that's just a stick. We crimp the crop after we plant, unless it's as tall as I am, and it's wrapping on the marker arm and breaking shear pins, then we'll roll ahead of it. 
but normally 90% of it gets rolled after planting. It covers up all my planter mistakes. On your cover crop that you've got growing, say, two to three feet tall, we go in and make hay off of that. Can we take any nitrogen credits for that cover crop once we've taken all of the biomass off the top? If it tends to regrow back any? No. No. Uh, you've probably lost at least 80% of the nitrogen because at that time that plant goes dead and a nodulation that has collected the atmospheric nitrogen will probably slough off over during the winter. What percentage of the time when you plant your beans into that cereal ride do you get by with no herbicide when you grow? How often can you make that happen? The question was how often can we make it happen in rye? Uh, if we're past six years of a cover crop, that would be two cycles of a three-year rotation. The seventh year or the eighth year when that field goes from corn to soybeans, we can 95% of the time eliminate the herbicide. The reason I'm not organic, I always want to have something in my back pocket. I am going to produce a crop and make yield. We saw those pictures and said I had 250 pounds of nitrogen. We're taking leaf samples. We're doing bad tests. Uh, we're also doing nitrogen in the soil. And your visual eye, if you look at a piece of corn and it's yellow and it's only three foot tall, you better put some nitrogen on it. Even though it had 400 on it or whatever you had on it. If it's that case, that's when we put some nitrogen on it. We'll leave that window open. That's why we're not organic. Are you trying to get the cover crop interseeding into corn or into soybeans or are you just doing the cover crop after the wheat? We attempt to do some in the corn and beans, have not been real successful with it. Soybeans with cover, especially this year, was a problem in our area because a rye went in with an airplane. Every kernel of it grew. We had a wet fall. Their beans were still in the field, and the rye is about a foot tall. And there's nothing any worse than having green residue feeding into that combine 12 to 14 inches tall with soybeans. Uh, that makes a guy not want to do that very often. But if you could control the growth, I think it works well. That's why we like to do it after planting. We don't have to worry about that. And rye is very forgiving. We have a planter that does, with interplants, that does 15-inch rows. That's what we currently use to do our cover crop. Can you do a multiple species cover crop with that? Can you expect to get a growth heavy enough that you can roll down and crimp and still have weed control? Or is 15-inch rows just too wide? It'll work with 15s. It's putting all your large species in the soybean plate and it's putting all your small seeds like in a reddish plate or a milo plate. Now, they will not be precisionally placed. You might have six or eight of one variety, six or eight of another one, or they might alternate. But it will, if you get it in early enough, it will canopy and, and help the soils. Are you saying that you do it in two passes or can you do it all at once? You can do it all at once. I do hear a lot of talk about the organic only coming from the roots. You put a lot of effort in time into trying to grow a lot of biomass and uh, a lot of the universities will tell you that it's just from the roots that extra biomass is not really doing you any good. I would think that you probably know better than they do so by your laughing I think I, are the universities going to back you up on this? Uh, at the present time no. I think they are coming around. Penn State's doing an awful lot of work with it. What we found is as they do these soil pits or we try to have field days and we find roots five, six foot deep. And if you got enough interns and they could dig every one of them roots out, what we found is there's as much biomass below the ground as there was above the ground. They just haven't had the funding or the opportunity. And the big thing is the funding 
to, to research that and do it. Yes, there is, or there is nitrogen in the green top, but I don't think it's as much as there is in the roots when you have nodulation. That's why you need to use the right bacteria on those legumes that's never been in that soil before. They will not nodulate if you don't have the right bacteria. Dave, did you use cereal rye or annual rye? I use cereal rye. I think annual rye has its place. To me, it takes more management. I mean, to me, the management for ryegrass, the letters are six foot tall. And in my rye, they're only three foot tall. So it don't take as much for me to do that. Uh, I think they belong in the blends that we're using, a couple pound per acre. I see nothing wrong with using ryegrass and burning it off when it's small. But as it gets bigger, it's tougher and tougher to control. And I have enough trouble getting things done and worrying about how to control it. So I stay away from things that cause us problems. That's my choice. In the corn, after you've crimped or rolled down the uh, cover crop, do you have to use any herbicide at all? Depends on the spring that you're working on. Depends on the maturity of that cover. If it's in full bloom or close to grain set, we can actually not use a herbicide. And if it's large enough, we can get by without even a second pass. But we leave that window open. If, it's, if we see weeds coming, we're going to take them out with a herbicide. You betcha. If you're organic, that don't work. I think, and we haven't talked about organic, but if you're organic, you just have to triple the seeding rate. Get enough biomass there so it stays. David, hi. I've come over from the UK to um, hear how successful you, you clearly are at doing this and hopefully learn some things to speak to farmers at home about. But it worries me that your neighbours are still persisting with conventional um, techniques despite the fact you've been doing this such a long time and have been so successful. Have they won the lottery or are they just stubborn? Uh, I, think, I think mainly, I think it's with all conventional farmers. It's what's between their ears. They have always been in that situation. It's being successful for them. It's working. And why should we change? The people I work with either is having low yields or they're in a financial bind and they need to change and then they're willing to think about something different. Not every farmer wants to reduce the amount of horsepower he's using on his farm and you can do it with cover crops. Surprising if, you, if, if I ever get to go to the coffee shop, it's surprising how much fuel they talk about their 800 horsepower tractor burning in an hour, which is more than I use in the whole damn year. <laughs> I just shudder and walk away. Yeah, Dave, you really haven't said how you managed to plant corn through that seven-foot rye in regard to do the wrapping situation with, with the rye and, and the other covers. Do you have problems with that? Uh, we did when we had row cleaners and spike closing wheels. There's some things we can do in the front of the planter or on the frame. Uh, you can mount a, uh, a two-inch bar on a four or five-inch long chain, hang it down there just so it don't get into the planter. Start leaning that stuff forward. Uh, that'll help you. The only thing we have trouble with wrapping is a marker on the marker on a disc. And usually it just builds up enough that it not even, it just lays the residue over, don't even turn the soil. You don't go out in a cover crop field and run your four wheeler six times a day out there before you plant corn. Because what you do, you end up following the track. Uh, there's a lot of times we got corn, plant, corn rows that's on a 90 degree angle because I picked out a deer track. And the neat thing about that is, you know, that's part of the management skill. You get out on top of the cab of the tractor when you're done planting in this 10-acre field and you take a look around the horizon, and if it's all laying over, you did a good job. But if there's one corner of it standing up, you just go back there and plant that corner again, you know, you missed it. 
All right, thank you very much, David. Give him a thank round you. of applause again. Thanks to Dave Brandt for his insights on cover crops. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC to register. And don't forget to enter the code PODCAST20 at checkout to receive a discount. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakegerlock at lestermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. Thank you.